the grade cricketer is a Twitter stream. It's about playing cricket at the grade level. It's a tough, mean, dirty, dirty business being a grade cricketer. A lot of cricketers, you know, that's all they know. They've mm. done it since they're 10 and they have a deep-seated fear of change. But the grade cricket is all about being the most alpha version of yourself as possible at all costs and at all times. I don't bat or bowl. I just feel a gully, count the number of dot balls in a row, sledge 15 yards, make me feel better about myself. Thanks, Thanks champ. champ. Oh, no, you called me champ. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Grade Cricketer Podcast for possibly the final podcast of the summer. Of course, we will look forward to the South Africa series uh, and and with an eye on returning. But uh, in the meantime, we'll be covering the last of the cricketing embers of this summer, the BBL. Uh, Lloyd Pope took eight wickets in an under-19 World Cup competition today. Who the fuck is Lloyd Pope? We're going to be talking about that. Obviously, the, the South African uh, squad has been announced. Sorry, the Australian squad to tour South Africa has been announced. And England have won the ODIs 3-0 in another dull, meaningless series. My name is Ian Higgins, and I'm joined, as ever, by two of my favourite people to speak to on this podcast, Ed Cowan, no, uh, Sam Perry and Dave <laughs> Edwards. Join us for one last time, going around again one last time this summer. Hello, boys. Welcome. Hi, Ian. Oh, yeah, I thought when you were saying two most favourite people that Mike Atherton was joining on one of those secret freeways <laughs> that we used to do. Now, let me just explain that three-way phone call. Uh, you know, when you're a teenager, you know, people would hide on, th- on, the, on the three-way uh, call. Yeah. Anyway, stop saying three-way, Pezzo. Thanks for the intro. <laughs> he goes. Did, uh, cricket's taken a... Um, like a bit of a back seat, hasn't it? Is yeah. there an Ashes hangover? Is that explaining our ODI slump? Probably not. It's strange over here. I mean, even so, people still want to talk to me in London about the ODI stuff. People suggested to me at work that um, Australia needs to start focusing on the modern game a little bit more, that it was too stuck yeah. in the past with its test match success. Obviously all tongue-in-cheek, but even still, uh, I, get up, up, I get upset by it. Yeah, I'm finding it hard, boys, and it's great to be with you for potentially the last... Um, podcasts of the series. It's good how we keep our windows open at all times. Never commit to anything. Mm. Caveat everything. Mm. Um, mm. The one day is I've struggled to get into it because you've got T20s going on and we just come off the test series. It's a forgotten format and um, it's always quite jarring to turn on and brace yourself for six to eight hours of, of back-to-back cricket um, and slow run scoring. The, the game the other day, Australia failing in a run chase, having elected to bowl first. It's just disappointing and depressing and I can't handle it because I'm just having an Ashes hangover just come off that can't deal with this loss can't deal with these fucking losses Mm. (laughs) only sing when you're winning uh, as as Robbie Williams once said actually that was swing when you're winning Um, Mm. anyway so I mean I think I think generally that uh, I think generally speaking um, cricket is definitely on the back burner and if it wasn't for two of our massive guests that we've somehow managed to land well I say somehow Pez has organised this but um, Mitchell Marsh and uh, George Bailey is, are on the show and you know you don't need to know that because you've seen the names on, on attached to this podcast yeah. but still if it wasn't for those two names would anyone listen to this podcast I think, I think my, my whole entire point here that I'm trying to make slowly here chaps is that um, because the Ashes I think it was such a letdown of a series obviously Australia played very well England played well in parts but you know 4-0 it was over midway through Perth. And then since then, you know, we've been kind of, well, what's, what's the next thing? What's the thing that's going to make us happy the most? And I suppose we'll start with the ODIs. It, it is 3-0, so we haven't even been given a good ODI series. England have played extremely well. They're a very good team. Uh, Australia have put together uh, strong teams, but not our strongest side. But um, 3-0 again. Now we've got two more dead rubbers. So basically there's been, uh, in the so far of the eight games, 
uh, that have been played between Australia and England across two different formats this summer, um, there's going to be four of those are going to be dead rubbers. So I think that c- contributes to all of our malaise into what's actually happening with the cricket sphere discuss. Mm. England, England is so good, he goes, in ODI cricket. Like yeah, You look good, at mate. the Australian side and they have they sort of look comprehensive across the park. They have blistering openers. They have huge rig-based selections in the middle order. <laughs> you know, everyone likes Zampa. We've got a, still got a fast bowling cartel. So you're like, oh, everything. You know, Steve Smith's in the side. So, like, yeah. where's the weakness? But then we just sort of suck compared to England in all facets. Mm. They're, they're sort of light years ahead at the moment. There's a World Cup here in uh, 18 months' time. Um, we better mm. get our shit together because I only live for winning. <laughs> <laughs> so, Dave, Dave, I want to put mm. I want to put this to you because I was watching the the other uh, the the third ODI the other night, and right. Australia were were in a run chase. They were chasing 270 odd, and uh, there was something about it which was so much more appealing than the Big Bash, for instance, or like a T20, and that there was still hope. There was hope that, and it dragged on for a long period of time that Australia could get their shit together. Then Steve Smith got caught with a, you know, a very controversial uh, caught behind the wicket by Josh Butler. But it was just like this elongated hope that Australia could win the match. Whereas in Big Bash, basically, if you have one bat over, then yep. it's done. Then you still have to play out the remaining, you know, ten overs. But it was like it was the hope that got me in, Edos. I mean, what do you, what do you, what are your thoughts on that? Well, that's probably why it is the perfect format for television, isn't it? Because it's never really over until it's over. I mean, a big bash game, yeah. you're right. You can turn it on and a team can be three for one for the first over and you might as well just fucking pack your bags <laughs> and go on home because you've wasted 30 bucks. Um, well, if you're actually watching it, you're probably paying $60 a month to watch Foxtel. Although it's not on Foxtel, is it? Fuck, I've got my wires crossed today. But um, yeah, where am I going with this? All I'm saying, he goes, is that one day cricket is fucked. And I'm suffering from this existential malaise that you speak of. Can we talk about something right, else? Well, Can we get onto the tests? Let's yeah, get onto the fucking tests. Yeah, something we'll, that means something. Okay. We'll, we'll save Dave here and we'll, we'll, we'll move on. So the Australian squad to tour South Africa has been announced. Uh, no real surprises. And I would include the omission of Chad Says in that, even though that's probably the biggest talking point. I mean, that's, mm. that's, that's my point of view. Um, has anyone got any thoughts on Chad Says' omission from the squad? Sam Perry, I'm looking at you. Perhaps even Dave. No, Dave, Dave, Dave wants this one. <laughs> Do I? Okay, I'll take it. Um, he goes, look, I think it's, it was always going to happen, wasn't it? I mean, Sayers, he's the perennial whipping boy. He's been left out of so many tours. He's taken so many wickets over the past six, seven years. Mm. And along comes this young bloke, Jai Richardson. He's got an interesting salad. He's played five games of first-class cricket, mm. but he can allegedly mm. bowl 140 Ks an hour in short bursts. So that will always obviously mm. win over the reliable, proven performer who's been taking <laughs> bags of wickets successfully at the level directly below test cricket for seven years and counting. <laughs> I just think it's, it's just weird, this era that we live in. I think it is related to the era that we're in because back in the 90s, it was, a, it was a different era. You know, coming off the back of the 70s, the era of Thompson and Lily, you know, hyper-hetero aesthetics and all. Uh, but the 90s mm. was a, a peaceful era. You know, the Cold War had ended. Uh, European <laughs> Union was ratified and in this newfound calm we developed an appreciation for things other than pace bowling we, we appreciated subtlety and artistry mm. in, in seam bowling and you, you'll probably remember Adam mm. Dale opening the bowling in the 90s um, yes. you know bowling less than 120 Ks and taking one for 20 off 10 reliably because mm. selectors saw the value here they looked past his lack of levers is what I'm saying and they put value in his line and length and his ability to take wickets 
Um, these days, mm. Glenn McGraw would be brushed off as just meds. It's fucking out of control the way that we have an obsession <laughs> with pace, and it does look as if they've looked at Sayers' lack of pace, which is ironic because Werner Philander is probably rolls around the same speed and does about the same amount with the ball. Um, and it's very successful on South African soil. So I just don't really understand where we are here when our relationship with speed and fast and alpha and I can only put it down to the global <laughs> era that we're in, the unstable era where it's all zero-sum and fucking pace means everything. Mm. <laughs> I blame China as well. Yeah, China. Would you, so you'd, you'd have Sayers in the 11? Oh, I just think that if you bowl less than 135 kilometres an hour these days, it doesn't matter who you are, you'll just be just meds. And it's hard to overcome that. Like, what's, what does Sayers do now? Like, you know, aside from fucking quitting cricket and turning off his phone and, and leaving the game and going back to uni and getting a degree and, and moving on with his life. Like, what does he do? He probably has to find 10Ks an hour somewhere. I don't know. Does he fucking start chucking it? It's probably his only option. Mm. So, 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 Pez, I'll, I'll work you into this one. But, like, I think what's... what's the most interesting thing about this, not his non-selection, the fact that he didn't get a phone call to say that he wasn't selected, which to me says how far away he actually is from, from the reckoning of actually playing a test match, right? I mean, would you agree with that, the fact that he didn't get a phone call to say that you're not touring? It seems to be this like proliferation of stories coming out now about like the way people were dropped and, and, you, and like the, the common theme seems to be... Uh, a lack of communication in Australian cricket. But, like, I guess my question is, if it's always been thus that you don't get spoken to, then what's what's the problem? What's different? Uh, Brett Jeeves came out with a, an article today saying that um, there's this mm-hmm. sort of time-honoured secret tradition, not secret anymore, I suppose, uh, where Steve Waugh sends a text to you if you're going to play for Australia. It's not clear in his article about whether mm. that's a text if you make the squad or the 11, but mm. he tells the story that Sayers last year got this text before the Adelaide test mm. um, in 2016, so I mean two years ago. But Jackson Bird ended up getting the start in the 11. Um, so he was that close and no one knows what happened in this intervening 24 hours between <laughs> War's text and uh, mm. Sayers' omission. I just want to say mm. on the Sayers thing... Um, the spicy element to it is this kind of dog whistle uh, when you read sort of South Australian or Victorian press that this is really like a, a New South Wales and now WA conspiracy. There seems to be these pockets of power in Australian cricket whereby if you play for New South Wales and obviously you get the baggy green yep. with that. But now it obviously. seems to be happening in WA as well where Justin Langer's influence is kind of growing and um, you see these WA people start to make their way in the side and, and Jai Richardson mm. is obviously a sand groper, as they mm. say. So the question oh, I'm, I'm saying is, you know, is... um. Is there an anti-South Australian bias, and how good a thing is that? So, I, yeah. okay, so the, the, we've spoken to enough cricketers, you know, like professional cricketers now, not just like blokes that we used to play against because we obviously don't talk to them anymore. But, like, the word around the circuit of Shield cricket is that Chad Says is exceptional at Adelaide Oval, um, but Jackson Bird, for instance, is the better bowler. And I think statistics might even show that, especially when he's... Um, at the beginning of this season, he's performed very well, um, Jackson Bird. So, like, I mean, that's that seems to be the chat. So, I mean, that's – and that, you know, Jackson Bird doesn't bowl 140s yet. He was picked, you know, for Melbourne. So, obviously on a shocking wicket. But um, what are our thoughts on that, Pez? Um, it's it's going to be pretty close, isn't it? Like, I mean, I just want to say that the Australian selectors have – 
publicly opted for a horses for courses policy a couple of years ago and it's actually bearing fruit and let's be honest i mean australia versus south africa in south africa is the ultimate alpha showdown yep i know mm. we talk about alpha all the time and it's becoming tedious but like everybody is big i feel like you know everyone's vegan but everyone like i just feel like everyone sits there at tea eating masses of meat um everyone's got chests <laughs> it's a bench press yeah. off mm. and really i think i feel like australia just need to take big people to South Africa because everything is just boisterous and robust and bounces and and, and wickets are bouncy. It's just like, it's like going into yeah. a parallel Australian universe. All this yeah. kind of, um, the backdrops for TV yeah. are of huge mountains and oh, stuff as well. Scary. So, it, it, you know, Everyone is massive. This is what mate. the thinking was. Sayers bowls under 1 to 40 and, he, and he's, he's under 180 centimetres. So, yeah, well, maybe it's the 180 centimetres thing that is the biggest issue. It's all about taking your biggest squad to South Africa. I remember when I went to South Africa, actually on a school cricket tour as a 15-year-old and playing alongside 18-year-old teammates. It was a real eye-opener because I was small. I was yet to, well, I never did, grow into levers and biceps. So I was confronted there with my own first taste of men's cricket. So you really are coming up. They're just big over there. They say bry instead of barbecues. Like, it's fucking weird and Mm. it's hard to get used to. Mm. Um, but hopefully mm. we just, you know, win one or two tests. <laughs> <laughs> well, one art that appears to not be dead in this country, and that's, uh, and that's just because of one bloke in the Under-19 World Cup taking eight for today, against the old enemy, England. Lloyd Pope took eight for 35, I think, in 9.4 overs to defend Australia's score of a meagre 127, and he rolled England out himself pretty much for 94, 95, 96, 97, something like that, um, with uh, a, pr- a proliferate of wrong-ins and, uh, and some wonderful catching by Jason Sanger at first, the captain of Australia's Under-19 World Cup. I don't know if either of you guys saw this, but it was actually a seriously impressive um, display of leg spin bowling from Lloyd Pope, who's got one of the worst salads you'll ever see, and I guarantee it right now that he will be sans hair by the time he's 25. Um, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Ian Higgins, National Nine News. <laughs> Why do you think that he goes? Like you, a are you talking about like an elective uh, shaving of the head, or is he is he losing his salary? No, he's one of those guys who have like really long hair now, but you can see it's yeah. like it's very thin hair. Yeah. Um, it's, you're always oh, quick to I identify those here, people, aren't you? You're always really quick to identify. Our, our those expert people. is. It's a it's a it's a high forehead. It's a high forehead and it's thin it's hair. And um, those two <laughs> factors together spell trouble for Lloyd. And the fact that his hair is long would suggest that he's aware of that too. It's it's a coverage issue. Um, Lloyd, the the shorter the hair is, the thicker it will look. But you'll have to discover that yourself. <laughs> it just reminded me of like what I said about Tom Curran earlier in the year. Like the haircut just didn't suit his style of hair. Anyway, that, mm. that aside, so Kieran <laughs> Keith got on Twitter today and he said, this bloke is good. And now people are t- comparing him to Shane Warne because, you know, if you bowl leg spin, you put one good form- performance in, you're going to take 704 test wickets. Mm. Um, so Lloyd Pope, next Shane Warne? Oh, absolutely. Quite clearly. I was on, yeah, I, I went to bed early last night, but I, I noticed the uh, England press Twitterati um, talking about how great it was that Australia was, you know, 27 for four in the cricket, and I say it that way around. 
deliberately. And I did, I, I did have the thought Australia's going to win this. I don't know why, because yeah. we're losing all of the games in coloured clothing anyway. But it was great to wake up to a leg spinner decimating a side, defending 120 odd. That doesn't seem that stuff doesn't seem to happen these days when you think about how good the pitches are and bats and all that sort of malarkey. Um, mm. For someone just, and also I think the bowlers around him didn't seem to do particularly well either. I know another opening bowler went for seventeen off two overs, and uh, you know, good friend of the show or uh, son of a good friend of the show, Will Sutherland, um, <laughs> you know, didn't have much success with the ball either. Uh, mm. But it, yeah, it's great; it's really good to see. And I think it, from memory, Lloyd Pope might have caused some damage to the England side in a CA eleven match before the season mm. started as well in one of these um, sort of much criticised warm-up games. Uh, he ended up right. impressing guys like Kerry O'Keefe and other people in the leg spin uh, community more than Mason Crane. So mm. good luck to him. Yeah, and no, no, I just noticed on Twitter now that Tom Morris, our Fox Sports colleague, has written an article on the backstory to Australia's newest cult hero. So you know someone's on the up okay. when Tom Morris is writing a feature article on him. <laughs> <laughs> I say that earnestly. Lads, I don't know if, uh, how much interest there is, even from this podcast, about you know the, the Big Bash League. Um, but there was a, a proper remarkable catch overnight. Uh, Melbourne Renegades' uh, DJ Bravo bombed the ball to the offside field and two, six, uh, two um, Adelaide Strikers players combined for just a, a phenomenal catch. I mean, like anybody who's got the internet right now should just look that up. They've probably already seen it, but it, it was amazing. But... Um, the Big Bash League, I mean, like, it, it's getting now to the semi-final stage. Uh, Adelaide have got a home semi. Uh, Perth will also have a home semi. And that new stadium that they've got over there, uh, I think it's called Optus Stadium, of course it is. Uh, how much interest have you guys got to watch the finals, the knockout stages of the Big Bash? No, I've not um, engaged with it this summer or winter over here, really. He goes like it's it's served a decent enough purpose of being on in the background and seeing the odd good play here and there, as you described, and and that was a wonderful play. But yeah, um, yeah I've not, I've not, I, I don't really know much about what's going on with the teams. It, I don't know if I said this last week. It'd be kind of um, ironic if I did, but it does feel like uh, like TV repeats. The Big Bash, it just feels like we've sort of seen this show before, and I just wonder if it mm-hmm. needs a regeneration of names. It needs new characters. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it just feels a little tired, mm-hmm. uh, you know, from my standpoint. I feel like I it like just goes a, a little too long as well, and I, and I think they're even talking about expanding it next season or, or maybe the season afterwards. But fuck me, I'm, I'm, I'm burned out by it, and I haven't been watching it every night, but it is on every night. It's fucking in your face every night. Um, <laughs> oh, it sounds weird, but it's it's frightening. <laughs> Um, it's just oversaturation, I think. I think they've got a great product and now they're just milking the absolute fuck out of it, which is good for them because commercially they'll make lots of monies. I just think it's, I think the country as a whole just seems to be suffering this burnout of cricket and I, I blame the Ashes for that. I think there was like such a build-up. Yeah, the Ashes this year, it's going to be huge. Big bash, you know, but it's just everything feels a little bit jaded. I think people are a little I'm bit so fatigued. so tired, he goes. Really, really tired. And obviously, us being the leading uh, the leading voice of uh, of Australian cricketers across the country, we have in no way contributed to this malaise, mm. other than to remark Despite. on it every week. <laughs> it is tired, <laughs> exhausting. All right, we've got two huge guests this week, just for you guys, um, and also for the three of us. Um, so we're going to hear from Mitchell Marsh and George Bailey. So stick around. 
And Dave Edwards and Ian Higgins, along with Sam Perry, are the authors of Tea and No Sympathy, the second of the grade cricketer novels. Dave, this novel starts, uh, and I'm not giving too much away here because it is at the start, it starts with dirty doings in C grade. Uh, <laughs> the grade cricketer gets involved in fixing a match, although it, in, a, in a kind of going along with it, um, more sort of beta male kind of way. Um, this is, I mean, one of the key characters in the book is his name is Nugsy, uh, and then we find yes, out his backstory. they've all got these appalling nicknames. <laughs> oh, Nugsy, Rooster, Chooker, a lot of poultry-based nicknames um, in grey cricket. But Nugsy, for example, he's he's the archetypal jock cricketer who, um, you know, wears a wife beater, he, he drinks far too much, he has a horrible gambling problem. But he's also, in the book, um, we find out about his backstory, and it's, it's very incongruous that he actually comes from, you know, French parentage and has spent a lot of his time... In, in, and, and youth growing up in the South yes, of France. Yes, fluent so French. I feel like a lot of people ask us, like, oh, is, are these characters based on anyone? And, like, I think <laughs> Nugsy especially is, like, he's not based on any one person in particular that we know, but he's, like, the worst traits of everyone we know all into one character. Amalgam. He goes, it's a distinct pleasure to have this uh, next cricket writer, journalist on. It's his debut on the show. I've been trying to get him on for a long time, but he's a tough man to pin down. Um, I'm talking about Vidushan Hantharaja. He writes for everybody uh, over here in the UK, for The Guardian, for Crick Info. He does great articles for Cricket Monthly. Um, you can hear him on BBC commentary doing the county stuff. At the moment, though, he's closer to you than me because he's in Australia covering the England ODI stuff. I think he's going to New Zealand doing stuff for the Guardian, the Evening Standard, and Wisden, um, he's a man about town, and he's also one of the best follows on Twitter. There is. Um, I'm going to revert to Vish, though, uh, for your name. Um, Vish, welcome to the Great Cricketer. Thanks for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. I don't know if you saw, but as soon as you announced on Twitter that I'd be on, the first two replies were friends of mine saying that I finally made it. So, <laughs> if my body of work over the last five years hadn't done it, then this this sole appearance now. Is, uh, is, is reason enough to be alive, oh. I'd say. <laughs> How embarrassing. You've definitely not made it. This is a hodgepodge arrangement where the internet barely works. But nevertheless, <laughs> you know, if it's, uh, you know, perception is reality, Vish. Can you, speaking of perception is reality, the perception over here is that um, uh, England are a fantastic ODI side, that Australia need to concentrate more on the modern game and stop being rooted in history. Um, can, tell us your impressions of watching England win all the time uh, in the ODI cricket. I'm not going to lie, it's a very, very weird sensation. Um, there, was a, there was a moment when Steve Smith was asked if, if Australia need to adopt England's approach to one-day cricket, and without, miss, without skipping a beat, he said yes. Now, you know, everyone's familiar with how England loved to tell the rest of the world how to do things around cricket, and the very last thing I thought was that We'd be in an ODI series where an Australian captain would be like, you know what, they're doing something right there. They're doing something right in ODI cricket because, God, yeah, for the longest time it's been so, so grim. Um, I can't really tell you how it's happened. Basically, all I can equate it to is that someone somewhere in one of the ECB's many labs just looked up and thought, what happens if we just went out there and chinned the fucker? Because that's basically what they're doing. <laughs> Isn't it, mate? Because like you, you guys just go out there and just pump it from the start. It's it, it just at all times you're hitting over 300 runs. Uh, and, you you know, we were saying earlier on the show that Australia seemed to have this well-rounded side with 
Smith and blistering openers and a good middle order and fast bowlers and and Zampa's okay, but it's not enough. It's I mean we're 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 just rungs below you guys. Yeah, it's, it's strange though because I, I, you know, I'm not saying that well, the way England are doing it is a blueprint that everyone else should adopt because evidently it hasn't really worked for them. They they lost the final of the World T20 in 2016. They lost in the semi-finals of the Champions Trophy last year. But if if Australia were to try and mimic what England do, then you've got all the players for it. You know, Smith can do that Joe Root role brilliantly. You've got Warner and Finch as well, and then you've got the likes of Marsh. You've got Stoinis, who, by the way, I mean. You know Liam Plunkett over here is fighting the fighting the rig battle for England, but Marcus Bowen <laughs> is bringing the heat. That is, he is something else. <laughs> but you have, but you know you have these players who who are. Clear. I mean, you know, even in the, in the having followed the BBL over here since coming over here, Darcy uh, Darcy Shaw, Alex Carey, these are the players who are taking the game to the next level in terms of being able to. I suppose just go big from the off, and you know, you know there, there isn't really that much tweaking that needs to be done to to get them in and get Australia playing, quote unquote, a modern brand of uh, ODI cricket. Sorry, that was very ECV, but hopefully <laughs> that's the last of those modern brands. <laughs> Fish, I want to ask you, like, I don't think the Australian public, which are obviously the most informed, um, you know, cricket spectators in the world, they, they saw this coming. I don't think that um, – I thought that the series would be close because I respected the English team. They bat deep. I mean, Wokes hit a 50 the other night, just whacked him, and he's batting, what, nine? Um, so uh, I, didn't, I didn't see 3-0 coming, but I wonder what the English public and the English team, more importantly, I suppose, um, did, did, did you guys see, you know, 3-0 coming out here? Um, I, didn't, I didn't think England would do what they did, what they've done in previous one-day series that follow like such a traumatic ashes and, and fall completely. Partly because mm. they had quite a few players coming in who had no experience of that, and, and crucially, their captain Owen Morgan. I don't think he's seen a red ball for the last four years, so yeah. you know I don't think he knows that people are still playing Test cricket. But what he can <laughs> do is come in and. I suppose inject a bit of energy and have some new ideas as well. Joe Root said the other day that he felt um, Owen Morgan was, um, you know, he, he was learning stuff from Owen Morgan and he could continue to learn stuff from Owen Morgan. Mark Wood said today that um, Owen Morgan's the best captain he's played under. Now, you know, obviously it's quite easy to say nice things when you're doing well, but I think there's a there's a lot of sincerity in those words. I think Morgan in particular has been quite a big driver of this because he's he's quite ruthless he's a, he's a little bit of a bastard but in a good way I suppose, let's go, can I say an Australian way on this podcast <laughs> but, but there's something there's something about him that really um, that kind of exudes calm and you know if he t- I'm currently looking out my window now and I'm about six floors up and if he told me to jump off I probably would and I'd probably do it in an attacking manner <laughs> <laughs> Um, I mean, what's the what's the what's the impact of Trevor Bayliss there? Because I mean, like the the sort of alpha aggression that is associated with with England's bowling and batting. Um, stop laughing at the word alpha, Mish. Um, <laughs> you know, it's it's it seems really Australian in, in a lot of ways. Like I'm trying to gain some sort of moral victory here for some reason on this podcast. I have no idea why, but like the way that you know Josh Butler sort of batted the other night, just like it's it's incredible front foot dog just whacking it over bowlers' heads. Like I mean, what's what's the impact that Trevor Bayliss has had on the white ball game in the UK? Um, well, that's a, on the white ball game in the UK. It it can't be said that he's anything other than a success. Even if England don't go and win the World Cup next year, which Looking at things and looking at the investment, you'd say it would be a tragedy in, in so many ways. Um, and it feels weird saying that about World Cup when England have only mm-hmm. dealt in tragedies. 
Mm. But with Bayless in particular, it's, I think it's just people. There are for so long England have had very very good fifty over cricketers and some very good twenty over cricketers as well. But because of the, uh, I'm, not, I'm trying to find the right word here, and all I can think of is because of the arsiness at the very top of the English game, they've kind of been made to feel like they're second-class citizens in so many ways. You'd, yeah. You know, people would, people would post big scores in domestic uh, white ball cricket and they wouldn't really get picked. It would just be, the ODI side was an extension of the test side and that kind of filtered down into the T20 side as well. And now I think Bayliss is, you know, he doesn't have a great knowledge of county cricket, but from the players he's seen, he certainly remembers fondly players like, you know, Mason. Mason Crane basically got, got a test cap because because Bayliss saw him get out A.B. de Villiers. It doesn't matter that it was a slog swept six, potentially <laughs> score right on the boundary's edge. He's seen Mason Crane do something that he thought was impressive in, in the wide ball game and has mm. given him a test cap. Now, you only mm. need to see how successful that's been because um, the last I checked, we don't have the ashes anymore. <laughs> Could be wrong there. Um, <laughs> uh, it's all white ball cricket here, you know. I don't, I don't really follow tests anymore, but, <laughs> but yeah, you know. So, <laughs> so yeah, obviously, at yeah, test cricket, he can go a lot better, and he has to take some responsibility for that. But in terms of white ball cricket, he's been quite a liberating presence and kind of been a breath of fresh air. There'll be there'll be English fans to tell you that they don't give a shit, but you know, I'm sure they will come next year. Vish, uh, there's been reports and there's been a lot of footage uh, over here and at home in Australia about um, Steve Smith possibly putting lip balm on the ball. Um, I don't even know when to say allegedly or not these days. The listeners know that. And uh, it reminded me of a piece, (laughs) a great piece you did in the Cricket Monthly um, magazine a couple, uh, I think it it was last year, where you spoke about some of the things that players do. You, You spoke to a lot of players, especially on the condition of anonymity, about the things that they do or have done in the past to alter the ball. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what you learned from talking to players about that and, um, and, and also where people can find that piece? Because I think it was very interesting. Yeah, cheers. So the, yeah, that was a piece for, for Cricket Monthly. And uh, the one thing that I garnered from it, speaking to uh, English players and, and some international players as well is that everyone's a bunch of cheats. <laughs> everyone is at it. So, um, <laughs> I suppose, I suppose you know there, there are varying degrees of it. So there were there was one one great story I heard, um, and it was a, a representative game played in the north of England in May. I think it was against the touring West Indies. It was I want to say about seven or eight years ago of a player who um, basically every summer sharpens one of his fingernails and uses it throughout the season as. Um, Let's say a way of a way of kind of uh, scratching the ball. Let's say, and um, well, I mean that's exactly what it is. It is scratching the ball, um, and he kind of he tops it. You know, he he, ensure, he preserves that nail through the season with nail hardener and stuff like that. And for, for this for this game, it was a bit of a nothing game, and he uh, he managed to get the ball reversing after ten overs. <laughs> I mean, that's a, we talk a lot about the kind of futility and the uh, boredom of going from square leg to cover in, in cricket, but maybe this is um, a lateral thinking way to remain involved in the game, just to develop a claw every summer, as uh, this player seems to have done. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the thing. Whenever you uh, whenever you see a team and they've got some 
Wolverine-looking bloke in a number eight. Think he's, he doesn't bat or bowl. Then you know. But, <laughs> yeah, keep your eye, keep your eye on the ball between that kind of thirty and uh, sixty over space. Yeah, it was it was fascinating. Really, I mean, I, you know, I, I was quite churlish when I say everyone cheats. I think people have, have tried to find ways of, of doing it differently. You know, um, so the, obviously the story of Marcus Trescotti during the two thousand and five Ashes with those Murray mints. That was something that was passed on to him by by Dermot Reeve and his Warwickshire side of the 90s. Asif Din used to have these sweets and used to show the ball and get really, really thick lacquer going on one side. Um, and, it, it, you know, you hear all sorts of stories. One of my favourite stories is actually from grade cricket about how people used to take a, a rag out covered in glue and they basically let the glue harden and then use that to, when they dry their hands to also, you know, work on the ball. So, you know, uh, you're, as, uh, you're a bigger bunch of cheats as we are. Well, Bish, to that end, I, I, just, I was reminded just as you're talking about then about, I mean, my second grade captain for a number of years, he actually used to put the ball overnight in the freezer um, in, the, in the thought <laughs> that it would make it harder. And it did absolutely nothing. And we chased 400 a lot that year. Um, so, you know, does anybody know how, it, how the ball swings? I still don't think anyone knows how it actually swings. Yeah. I think the point is that you played second grade. That's the point of that story, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> no, that, Alfred. Uh, no, kid. Vish, thanks so much for, for joining us. This is, um, it's been great to have you on for the season finale. Finally, we've had you on and people can hear um, – your excellent insights, and you can read Vish anywhere. Uh, he's 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 all over the shop. Um, and uh, mate, enjoy the rest of your time in Australia and New Zealand. Cheers, boys. Thanks for having me. This is the story of all those Saturday afternoons you said to yourself, "Why?" This is the story of when it's all you've ever known, and you have a deep-seated fear of change. This is the story of what happens when you used to be good. This is the story that began in 1882 and finished with your father still not turning up to watch you play. This is the story of unemployed middle-aged men who sledge 15-year-olds and give send-offs to players that are younger and already better than them. Of part-time uni students trying to make it back into second grade. Of men who turn up the training in suits just to appear intelligent. Of men who lie to their wives when the game is called off. Of blokes who bat eight and don't bowl of the all-time circuits that are paid for by club presidents with offshore bank accounts and mail-order brides. This is the story of the endless pursuit of the triple C, the century, the circuit, the chop. This is the story of Nugsy, of Bruiser, of Chuka, of Nathan, of Robbo. This is the story of Dad. This is the story of what to do when the game's just not that into you. This is the story of change, of fitting in again, of finding yourself. This is the story of Lara. This is for every partner who doesn't understand the LBW rule. This is for everyone who's ever asked, who's winning? This is the gift guide for that nephew that you haven't spoken to in 12 months and you heard he likes cricket. He won't soon. This is the story of a father-son match, a poker match, a Tinder match, a match that finally broke me. This is the story of a circuit, a chop king, of incongruous French history, of Nugsy's car, of our darkest day as best friends. This is the story of reconciliation, of popped collars, of Mark Waugh's cover drive, of what it's like to lose the only thing you've ever loved. This is the story of my life, your life, 
of every lifeless wicket on a Saturday afternoon. This is the Grade Cricketer. Tea and no sympathy. Boys, a distinct pleasure to welcome this next guy onto the show. Uh, some background, as always. He debuted for WA at 17. He debuted for Australia at 19. He's got hundreds and fifers in both tests and ODIs. He's hit two hundreds in his last four digs for Australia. He's an Ashes victor. And most importantly, his nickname is Bison. Uh, honestly, <laughs> that is the greatest achievement, I think, of all of this. Uh, all cricketers would know that. Uh, I'm, of course, talking about Mitchell Marsh. Mitch Marsh. Mitch, welcome to the Great Cricketer. Well, thanks for having me. Thanks, thanks, thanks for coming on. You're in Perth. I'm in London. The other two boys are in Sydney. We'll see how the phone line holds up here. We always start mm. the same way, Mitch, by asking for um, you know what your relationship is to grade cricket. And, and I suppose my question is, do you even know what grade cricket is, uh, given that you <laughs> debuted for Australia at 19? Lad, I'll, I'll talk you through my last grade game for the mighty uh, Port uh, Fremantle, Fremantle boys. I uh, In between the Cup of Shield games, uh, first week, it was uh, 45 degrees. We lost the toss and bowled. Uh, sort of first slip for the day. Uh, dropped two catches. Came back next week. Um, beautiful batting conditions. Got a second ball duck. So um, I've really hit my straps in great cricket this year. <laughs> how, how did you not just retire from cricket after that? I'm, I'm very surprised you didn't just automatically retire. Yeah, my, our grade ground's got one of the longest walk-offs in, in the history of great cricket too. So um, I had a lot of uh, dark thoughts as I was walking off the ground there. But, um, yeah, I'm saying, I, actually, I do love playing for the port. They're, they're a great club and I uh, love getting back there. So, Mitch, you must have um, you must have just been playing sport. Like, sport must just be in the household nonstop. Obviously, uh, obviously, Sean hits them pretty well as well, and uh, you're obviously playing for Australia these days. And then your sister, um, Lisa, as well, played 14 seasons in the w, uh, WNBL. Um, as a as a kid in the household growing up, were you guys just sport nonstop? Uh, we we certainly were. Yeah, I think um, having or well, Sean and Melissa having grown up on a farm, they spent a lot of time outdoors. Um, in their younger years, and then once we moved to Perth, Dad didn't want to live on a, on a small block, so we lived um, just out of Perth um, on two and a half acres, and we were lucky enough as kids to grow up with a tennis court, and um, which had a basketball ring, which also proved to be um, the centre stage for our backyard cricket battles as well. So, mm. you know, as a family and as kids, we spent so much time outdoors, just playing all sorts of sport. That I think that's where our love for sport stemmed from. And your when you were a young kid, Mitch, your dad was the coach of the Australian cricket team uh, and in the late 90s, no less, the best era in the history of sport, regardless of the code, really. Do you realise, firstly, how lucky you are? <laughs> and, and just secondly, what it was like being a young kid, you know, seven, eight years old and having your dad coaching the national team? Because I'm guessing you got kind of inside that inner sanctum and you would have met a couple of the greats. But just having your dad there coaching the Australian cricket team and you kind of being around that, what was that like? Yeah, it was phenomenal, really. Uh, when you think about it now, um, as a kid, I probably took it for granted because I just thought it was normal. But, um, you know, now... Yeah, it's really I normal. Realize how, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I realised how lucky I was to, be, you know, to share a change room as a young kid. Um, you know, with Steve Waugh and Gilchrist and Warren and McGrath, all those guys. I remember sitting on a bus in England one day. Um, I was sitting next to Shane Warren and he just handed me this massive wad of cash. <laughs> Uh, he was obviously taking, 
taking the piss out of me and I went up to Dad. Dad pretty much yelled at me on the bus to give that back right now. So that's sort of uh, stuff I didn't think I was scared. I didn't know what was going on. But, um, you know, it, uh, yeah, I was very lucky to uh, have those sorts of guys around me. <laughs> have, you ever, have you ever thought about returning the favour to warning next time you see him, just like handing him just wads of cash? Yeah, <laughs> yeah I'm not sure my wads of cash are the same uh, or as big as uh, warning's wads of cash. Mitch, obviously it's been an excellent last couple of weeks for you uh, for a number of reasons. Um, can you just sort of take us into you know, how you guys are feeling after winning the Ashes and, and also just personally for you with the, um, I guess, you know, extraordinary comeback and the way you performed in the last couple of tests as well. Um, you know, how, how have the celebrations been? I mean, for example, there was a text message floating around that I saw that, you know, saw you in a pub with a guitar. Um, I don't know if you, I mean, if you were just serenading people there or, or whatever. If you could just take us through all of that, uh, that'd be great. <laughs> yeah, look, uh, it was a... Uh... You know, it was a, a, a good month. I really hit my straps after that last test, though. So, um, yeah, that was just like, like for us. Um, oh, look, it was, yeah. Like, we, we obviously celebrated in person when we won the Ashes, but we had the, the um, you know, the carrot dangling for us to go 5-0, and it obviously wasn't meant to be, but it was really nice to finish off the way we did and finish 4-0. And, um, you know, we, we certainly were given a licence to celebrate because it's, it's not every day you win Ashes Series 4-0. Um, so we celebrated that night, and as we saw in a few of the, uh, I think it was Daily Telegraph, one of the uh, all-time worst articles, um, we celebrated into the next day, and um, it was fantastic to be able to reflect on on that. Um, it wasn't too well the next morning, but it's a, a great 24 hours. <laughs> so, Mitch, I'm just looking at them, you know, just sort of looking back now on the on the three one days that have been. It must have been extraordinarily difficult to put so much effort and energy into that Ashes series, you know, come away four 0 victors. I mean, how hard is it to to turn that around so quickly to then get your mind right for for one day international straight away? Um, it was tough. I think we had uh, five or six days, so we we certainly enjoyed ourselves for, um, after the Test match, but. Once we came into the one-day camp, um, you know, there was there was no talk of us being flat or anything. We we prepared as well as we could. As um, you know, everyone could say there's an element of us coming off the ashes and being a bit flat, but it certainly hasn't felt like that. Um, and England have just outplayed us really in, in the last three games, so um, it's been really disappointing to to lose the, the one-day series. But we've obviously still got two games to go, and we're playing for a lot of pride now. Mm. Yeah, over here in London, Mitch, there's a lot of people at work who are much more keen to talk to me about the cricket uh, after the one days than they were for <laughs> test matches at any stage, which is uh, just remarkable. I just, just wanted to speak a bit about you, um, and I've got like a, a bit of a personal observation here. Like all rounders seem to get it the worst in Australia because you know we just have this thing where in Australia we just want everything all the time. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. we, we we need all rounders to hit hundreds, to bat quickly, mm-hmm. to look, you know. Mm-hmm alpha at all times you know to bowl 140s <laughs> to take take wickets take catches um all against the best players in the world you know there's no quarter given and if you're not doing that you um you, t- you tend to cop it a lot um you know you, you've spoken before about social media vitriol uh that you've received in the last couple of years can you just give us an insight into what it's like you know to um to cop that kind of stuff and what it was like during that period um, yeah, it was obviously uh, 
pretty tough. I think probably the hardest part about it, well, if you, if you, if you learn to not take stuff personally, um, then it's fine. But I think when I was going through that period, I was pretty much, I um, got off Twitter, which was the best thing I've ever done. Um, but I was also <laughs> we reading do that too. Facebook comment and boats coming up on the Instagram photos. And I sort of took all of those personally and, um, and I probably got to a stage where I was walking out to that during test matches and thinking about those sorts of things um, and trying to prove people wrong instead of actually just watching the ball and playing the game of cricket and, and enjoying it for what it is. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I've certainly learned over the last 18, 18 months that um, you can't worry about that. And, um, you know, I've sort of got to the stage now where I really don't care, um, apart from people that I care about and people that are close to me, it doesn't really matter what other people say. And, um I've sort of proven to myself that I can actually go out there and, and play at this level, which has been great. So hopefully I'll be able to keep going now. Yeah, and Mitch, you've chosen to skip the IPL uh, coming up in favour of honing your game in county cricket in England. Firstly, you obviously hate money. Um, <laughs> <laughs> seriously, uh, what, I'm, what my, my actual question is, is that it's a very big decision uh, to forego that kind of financial windfall. I'm just wondering what drove that decision and, and was it your decision alone or was it one that you made following a talk with some other influential figures? Yeah, I certainly spoke to um, obviously my dad and, and Justin Langer and, and I spoke to Cook as well. Um, and I, I basically made the decision before this season started um, having really thought that I wasn't going to play any part for Australia. I thought I was going to play the one days if I was in good form um, but I really didn't think that I was going to play any part for Australia in the longer format and um, whilst, yeah, I think I've, I'm probably, you never know in an auction, but I have um, turned down a fair chunk of money. I made that decision mm. with the best interest to play Test Match Cricket for Australia. And um, at the end of the day, if, you, if you're playing Test Match Cricket for Australia, then, you know, the money side of things takes care of itself. And mm. it doesn't exactly drive me to, to walk out there and perform to, to earn good money. It's um, the fact that I want to play cricket for Australia for as long as I can, and then the rest takes care of itself. So, um, it was a big decision, and I think and I'm, if I was probably 30 years of age and, you know, getting to that stage of my career, there's no way I'd be turned down the IPL, but I've still got an opportunity mm. to, to work on my game as much as I can the last 12, well, the next 12 months and then and go from there, and hopefully I'll still have a good, you know, eight years of IPL after this one, and, um, yeah, I'll probably never get that money back, but uh, hopefully I'll <laughs> <laughs> Maybe, maybe Warnie will... What do you give it to in a paper bag? There's so much wads of cash and paper bag talk in this conversation. I know it's all been uh, really earnest so far, Mitch. I just, if, if I could c- continue that theme a little bit, it's quite obvious that there's a, a like a, a maturation process going on with you. You know, you're talking about a change from not thinking about Facebook comments when you go out to bat for Australia to, um, you know, proving yourself on that stage and, and choosing Surrey. Uh, over the IPL, you've spoken a little bit recently about the changes to your actual batting, you know, and the things that you've done to, I guess, yeah, evolve uh, in that sphere of your cricket. And you spoke about your your coach Scott Muleman and you know the yeah. impo- you know how you've kind of learnt uh, the importance of defence. <laughs> I'd love to get to Australia and only then discover the importance of defence. But um, <laughs> and I, I think previously you sort of had spoken about maybe being just a bit of a front dog player. Also, I would love to be that too. But um, can you just take us a li- like take us into that thought process a little bit? I mean, what what changes have you made to your batting? Yeah, look, Scotty got a hold of me um, after my 
I, pretty much when I came home from India, um, I've known Scott for a long time. Um, he lived with Sean when they were younger, um, back in the heyday. Um, and obviously Bob's coached um, so many great cricketers in Western Australia. So um, I thought that I, you know, something had to change my game. And I pretty much went to Scotty and asked him to have a few hits. Um, I was pretty lost, really. Um, when I came home from India, I didn't really know what to do with my batting. I didn't know what I had to change. Uh, it may sound pretty stupid from someone who's been playing for Australia, but um, you know, I didn't. I didn't have an answer on how to to just keep working. And I, I'd hit a thousand, or well, thousands of balls last summer, and it just wasn't working for me. And um, you know, I'm really thankful that I went and worked with Scotty. We worked on, um, like you said, tightening up my defence. Um, done a lot of work on moving my feet and getting off that front dog. Um, <laughs> that, that sort of stem, that sort of stem from playing a lot of white ball cricket, um, where you know that allows you to just get on the front dog and and uh, play with a lot of freedom. But for me, in red ball cricket, and especially playing at home, home my home ground being a whacker, um, learning to defend and, and lead balls and play the cut shot off the back foot um, has become a really important shot for me. And it's been really pleasing for me this season to be able to see that come to fruition um, from all the hard work in the off season. So. Um, yeah, I'm really thankful for Scotty. I just had about an hour and a half hit with him at, down at the shop. Um, it's about 35 degrees here today, so I'm absolutely uh, sort of out. But I'm uh, yeah, really thankful that he's sort of come into my cricketing life. So, uh, as always, uh, Mitch, it's always the next series. We're always looking towards the horizon, and South Africa is, is but um, but weeks away, really, and uh, and obviously the squad has recently been announced, um, and uh, perhaps you would be, of all people, probably best uh, qualified to talk about the inclusion of Jai Richardson. Um, obviously, uh, Chad says uh, exclusion has caused a bit, of, uh, a bit of controversy, but perhaps you can tell us a little bit about what Jai Richardson can, can bring to the party in South Africa. Yeah, look, without pumping his tyres up too much, I think he's a real <laughs> talent uh, for Australian cricket. Um, I've watched him bowl you know, in Shield cricket this year. Um, look, he bowls genuinely fast. And for someone who's... I think a lot of times when you get someone um, who bowls fast and they're quite small, they can be skiddy and come onto the bat beautifully. But um, somehow it, it actually extracts a lot of bounce, um, which is great. And he, he's got the ability to swing the ball both ways when, when the conditions suit, um, which is an unbelievable skill at his pace. Um, he's mm. a great kid. He loves learning, loves the game. He's an absolute cricket snuff. It's, it's actually quite funny. Actually, I, I, was, I was on a plane with him. Um, we were flying out to a shield game a couple of months ago. And uh, he was playing this stick cricket game on his phone. And I sort of looked over. And um, Nothing. Uh, he, was just, he, was just, he was just watching the, this stick cricket game. He said, oh, what are you up to? He's like, oh, I'm just watching my highlights. So... <laughs> Subtly undercutting, if I'm being an absolute cricket nuffy. Yeah. I hope he goes well. That's, that's a genuine fact. He's watching stick cricket highlights of himself. <laughs> I didn't know that was the thing. When was the last time he spoke to a woman? Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's me or him. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we'll move on to the throwdown section. I think that's an appropriate segue. Mitch, we'll ask um, stupid questions and see what you think. If you find it funny, good. Um, please give us your answers, though. We'll... A, a simple one to start with. I read the other day, Mitch, that um, apparently you and your family have some rule that when you go out to bat, your grandparents who are watching aren't allowed to leave for the toilet. Um, so when you hit 181 the other day, 
um, I, I presume they were pretty keen to go to the toilet. Why would you do that to elderly people? <laughs> well, yeah, look, I, I didn't start that rule. That was my mum. So I'm not sure how she would, but um, yeah, she's got a bladder of steel. Mind Can you, I- the last couple of years, she doesn't have to wait long. But this is kind of akin, Mitch, to um, that idea that you can't move when someone's batting. So when you get out, do you Mm. go up to your grandparents and say, who moved? (laughs) Sorry, say that again, guys. (laughs) Don't worry, don't worry. We'll leave it. We'll leave it. Next. We'll keep going. We'll keep going, Mitch. Um, Another one on the all-rounder position, which is obviously, you know, the role historically acknowledged as the true embodiment of Australian masculinity in cricket. Keith Miller, Shane Watson, yourself, and now a new contender in Marcus Stoinis. What are you doing to stave off the threat posed by Stoinis and his irresistible rig salad combo? Yeah, look, um, he's actually a phenomenal-looking man. Um, Mm. He's pretty much got me covered in all facets of life, really, so um, I'm just going to have to go and run. <laughs> it just go runs, yeah. Otherwise, otherwise I'm cooked. <laughs> so, Mitch, um, I'll give you the highlights of your own career, which obviously you know these things. But um, you, you sort of you, you captained the under nineteen World Cup winning side uh, as a junior. You've won the Ashes. You've won the World Cup at home. You've scored a hundred whilst batting with your brother in a Test match. Um, you've won the BBL. You also scored one hundred eighty-one not out. Uh, in an Ashes game at the WAC on your home ground. And, of course, you've also scored 102 not out in a losing side in a one-day international. So I'm just wondering why you're still playing. I've actually... Um, I'm just using this interview today to actually announce my retirement from the game. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Another exclusive <laughs> on the great cricketer. <laughs> uh, um, no, it's, uh, when you look at it like that, it's, um, yeah, I've um, had a lot of fun along the way. So hopefully I've got a few more... Done it right. Uh, Mitch, so, so it's well understood that you have the cricket dad that everyone wants. Um, when your dad picked you to play for the Pune Warriors in the IPL uh, in 2011 for $290,000, did you say thanks, Dad? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Insider trading. I bought him, I bought him a Definite few nepotism. Yeah. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah, that was my nickname. Just on your dad again, Mitch, um, and it will frame most of the questions uh, from here until close. You've obviously experienced the euphoria in Sydney of scoring an Ashes 100 with your brother, Sean, as, as he goes just said. So what was it like to achieve the boyhood dream of seeing dad at your games actually watching as opposed to head down reading a newspaper? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, dad's not a great watcher, I'll tell you that. Um, you know, I actually got another story for you. So Sean and I, when we first batted together in test match was at Adelaide Oval, uh, I'm not sure if that was the first time, but it was a pink ball test and we needed about 100 runs to win. And we had a little partnership and Dad actually left the ground. <laughs> and then Sean and I started banding together and he left the ground, boys. He couldn't watch. So. Did you notice that? Because he couldn't watch or did you see, did you see him stand up it. and leave? I didn't notice it, but when I heard, I gave him a spray. I said, man, what's the point in coming and watching this if you're going to walk out the bloody ground? Like, <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, Mitch, let's let's um, discuss circuits. Uh, which was the better circuit um, after the World Cup win or the Ashes win or perhaps even uh, the 20, your 21st in South Africa? <laughs> oh, my 21st is an absolute belt. I was worth every article. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, I'd have to say, <laughs> I'd have to say the World Cup uh, definitely. Um, it was sort of at the end of the season, so um, celebrations carried on for about a month. Mm. Um, one, well, I was best sort of fan ever for the World Cup final. Um, celebrated <laughs> like I made a hundred and took five for during the game. <laughs> round. And then that whole week sort of flowed into um, Sean getting married as well. So uh, it was a hell of a week. When you when you wearing the Australian ODI kit out on the circuit, am I right in saying that? Uh, look, there's uh, you know, a few rumours um, floating about that uh, we were in our one day kit. <laughs> I think that was the uh, that, that was the skipper's orders though. So I just did as I'm told. <laughs> Not sure. Yeah, Sponsors right, orders. <laughs> Mitch, um, there's a really great shot of you and Captain Steve Smith leaving the field. Uh, at the Wacker after that wonderful partnership this summer, and you're both saluting the crowd in that kind of traditional way that people salute the crowds when they've made a ton. I, I just want to ask, why does Steve Smith hold his bat so strangely when he's saluting the crowd? He holds it by the mm. blade, and it looks mm. weird and incongruous, yeah. and it bothers me. Yeah, it, look, there's no other way to describe it in, um, apart from the fact that he's just a strange man. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he's just he's just weird in all facets of life. Um, probably why he's the best ever. But uh, yeah, look, uh, I'm not sure why why he does that. But um, that's just major. He's got a few things that he does differently. <laughs> you must be well and truly ensconced in the test team to just call you Captain Strange uh, on, on air. But you, de- you definitely are, Mitch. I mean, uh, just on behalf, we'll wrap it up there just on behalf of us and uh, everyone who listens. Congratulations on um, the, the team achievement and your personal achievements this Ashes series. You made at least Australians very proud and, um, and English people quite mad, but um, respectfully mad too, <laughs> I would say. Um, all, all the best for the ODI series, all the best for South Africa. Thanks for coming on the show. Cheers, guys. Thanks a lot.